Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's my pleasure today to introduce this podcast, which will discuss the article entitled A Critical Review of Functional Assessment Tools for Upper Limbs in Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy. The authors are Dr. Mazzoni, Vasco, Palermo, Bianco, Caluccio, Ricotti, Castronovo, Dimaro, Pane, Mayhew, and Mercury. It will be discussed by Professor Eugenio Mercuri, who is Professor of Pediatric Neurology at the Catholic University, Rome, Italy, who is one of the authors, and by Professor Anki Eliasson, who is Professor of Occupational Therapy at the Karolinska Institute, Stockholm, in Sweden. Please can we turn to you, Eugenio, to summarize the paper. Thank you. The aim of the paper was to have a critical review of the assessment tools that we have for upper limbs in the Shannon muscular dystrophy. In the last few years, there has been a lot of pressure from families, advocacy groups, and regulators to have measures for assessing upper limb in non-ambulant boys. This is because for the first time, there are several therapeutic treatment approaches for the shen muscular dystrophy who are entering the clinical arena, and it was obvious there were no suitable clinical outcome measures to use in non-ambulant boys. All the studies in Duchenne muscular dystrophy so far have targeted young ambulant boys, and uh, with these treatments becoming more and more available, with an increasing number of studies becoming available, it has been thought that the studies were needed not only because we want to include non-ambulant patients, but also because if boys with Duchenne lose ambulation during a trial that only targets a six-minute walk or other studies assessing ambulation, then we have no way to follow the performance in these children. Because of this, there has been a lot of efforts, international efforts, to review the existing scales and to try to develop new tools. But the first step for developing a new tool is, of course, to have a critical review of functional assessment tools. And that's what has been done in this paper, where we searched the literature for all the existing scales that had been used in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So we selected only the scales that had been used either in clinical trials or in natural history studies in boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And of course, we were aiming for scales who were either focused on upper limb performance or that included a significant number of items that were assessing upper limb scale. And it was an interesting review because we observed that many of the study only assess or mainly assess strength. Strength is an important component, of course, in a muscular dystrophy, but it cannot be the only measure to assess other aspects uh, like functional aspects in everyday life because a child can have uh, excellent strength but may not be able to perform uh, something like holding a cup or, or a bottle because there are contractures or because there are other limitations to perform the action. So we were more interested in analyzing and in reviewing the measures that would actually reflect what we are told by the regulators uh, we have to observe as clinically meaningful uh, activities. We were interested in activities of daily living that the patients thought were relevant for their everyday life. So the review started first separating all the articles assessing strength from the one assessing functional outcome measures, and we focus on the functional outcome measures. And even within the functional outcome measures, we had to do a further distinction between scales that were observer-rated 
So these tests were performed in clinic where children were asked to perform some activities and they were observed and scored, while others were mainly self-reported scales where patients or their parents were asked to report activities that very often cannot be easily observed in a clinic setting. The results of this review showed that there were only four survey-rated scales that were based on performance and only four self-reported scales that had been previously used in the MD. The aim of this review was not only to assess the validity of the scales in terms of validation studies to see whether they had been used in clinical trials or to collect natural history data or they had gone through a process of analysis for intra and inter-observer reliability and so on, but was also to assess whether the scales had been specifically developed to assess aspects of function that can be impaired in the distribution of weakness that is part of the Duchenne muscular dystrophy or whether they were just adapted to Duchenne muscular dystrophy or, as in the case of Jepsen, had been developed for cerebral palsy and then they had been subsequently adapted for other disorders. This exercise was very useful because we found a lot of items that provided useful information, but none of the individual scales could reflect all the different levels of functional abilities that we observe in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a progressive disorder, and patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, are ambulant first, then by the age of 12, untreated children will lose ambulation, and then there is a progression of uh, involvement of the upper limbs, and we were interested uh, to assess the whole spectrum of abilities of upper limbs, uh, ranging from what children can do when they are still ambulant uh, until the very late stages of the disease, when children first lose the ability to perform anti-gravity shoulder anti-gravity movements, and they can only perform very limited movements with the fingers. So the idea was to identify within each scale which were the items that could assess the different stages of the disorders. And the uh, review was very, very helpful because we were able to identify a number of items and to decide that uh, uh, although each scale was very useful in providing some information, none really reflected all the different levels that we were interested in. Thank you very much, Eugene. It was a very interesting article. Congratulations. I think it's mainly interesting because you have not only looked for reliability and validity of the assessment, you have really tried to target what is the aim of the different kind of assessment, and that's not so common. So I think you really have chosen a very good approach to this. So. You said that you only get a few assessments. I think you got a lot. To me, it was more than expected in this field. It was more than we expected, but in practical terms, many of these scales had been used many years ago at the time when also the survival and the life expectancy yeah. and the level of ability of the children was very limited. So I think the, many of the studies did not really reflect it, what we observe in Duchenne boys now uh, in view of the recent standards of care. What is really the, the main requirements as you want to find here? What is really the items you want to include in a new assessment or take advantage of in, in the test you have? 
as I said, the Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a progressive disorder. So yeah. there is not a, a single item that will be suitable for all the patients because depending on the age and the level of severity, there will be different items that will assess what is most important for the boy or the adult at that level of disability. So when we talk to the boys or to their families, mm -hmm. it was obvious that age 12 is important to perform all the activities like taking books from the shelves or taking things from the floor and so on. And by the time they are 18 or 20 and there, there has been further progression of the disorder, this boy will find useful lifting a, even a small object or being able to help to feed themselves, even if, if they mm -hmm. help themselves with their head uh, towards the hand. Uh, and at the later age of the disease, what becomes more important is really to be able to use the mouse and to be able to use a computer in general terms. So the important okay. items change with age. And I think what is important in a prospective a new scale or in a prospective scale that could include all the activities is really to have a number of items that would progressively include all the items from the most difficult to the easiest one uh, so that uh, it would be used across level of activities. And this would allow to follow patients for many, many years and also to include all the patients in possible clinical trial because if we were going to do a clinical trial tomorrow, we wouldn't have any reliable or suitable outcome measure. So this is very different to what you have earlier had. I can see in the article that earlier is quite common to look for strength, anti-gravity moments, time, endurance. So you look really for something different here. Yes, we are looking for function, really, and one of the big advantages of the work done in the last few years has been that we had many more meetings with families, boys, and also advocacy group, other advocacy groups who have provided us clues on what is important for them. And we have realized that you may increase your strength in an individual muscle, but even if you double a very little strength, this doesn't come together with an improvement in any function. This is really not meaningful. So we had concentrated, we had focus on functional daily activities because this is what families and boys report as clinically meaningful. But you don't want to ask questions. You want to have a standardized assessment. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, well, I think the two things should go in parallel. What, uh, there is an, an international group now, including practically all the people who have been involved in outcome measures in Lucian muscular dystrophy, and there is an attempt to develop the two measures that will be run in parallel. One is an observer-rated reported, because if you do a clinical trial, you need something that is validated, is well standardized, you need your test material and everything to be done in the same way, of course, because this will provide an objective measurement that can be used in a clinical trial. On the other hand, families and parents also report their activities like going from the bed, to, from the wheelchair to the bed or other aspects of daily living that cannot be easily observed in a standardized situation, but are very, very important for them. So the way we are going yeah. is to have two parallel assessments. One is observer-rated performance-based that is more objective and can be used as a primary outcome measures in possible clinical trials, but also to have additional information that will provide further information in another test that is, is a PROM, is a parent or patient reported outcome measure that will provide us additional measures on the way that perform at home because with the treatment we may see that the treatment will provide not only an improvement in our observer-rated performance but also yeah. on how they function at home.
I can see your point. I think it's very right in what you're saying. I can also see the problem because it means that if you have a task where they have to move a book from the shelf to take the book from the shelf beside them and read it, it might not be able to do it in the standardized situation, but they might be able to do it at home because they have arranged the environment so it's possible. So we have different answers on the same question. Absolutely. But it was also important to make a clear distinction that there are some items that you should observe and record in the most objective ways, and that the other items that you can only have as reported, that it should not be mixed with the others. Otherwise, you will never have a reliable tool. The two things should go together, but as separate tools. Uh, since I mainly have been working with you in the cerebral palsy, I was thinking when I read that you really wanted to know something about the bimanual activity. And that gave me probably a very different idea of what you mean than if you are well known about the field of vision voice. So sure. what do you mean by bimanual sure. activities in yeah. this case? The term bimanual was used to indicate that some boys may not be, to be able to perform one task using one hand, uh, like, for example, is requested in the Jepsen, but they may be able to provide the same task with one hand supporting the other. So many children will be able to drink if uh, they bring the cup or the glass with both hands to the mouth and so on. So we were not yeah. interested, of course, in bimanual coordination or in no. other aspects where the two hands have to work together or it happens in uh, cerebral palsy or in other brain-related activities. But because many of the tasks in the existing scales, like the Jepsen, were just performing each hand separately, we would like to allow in a, in a future test that in real life children may not, well, first you may ask to do them with one hand, but if they can't, you, you would ask them to perform it in the way they do it in real life, and very often this is with some support from the other hand. So we would allow some extra help because this would still be a functional task. They would still be able to perform the task even if they can do it with one hand only. But endurance uh, seems to be an important issue also. Do you think that will be possible to say something about that in standardized task? Probably you should have to repeat something for a longer time period to be able to say something about it. Endurance has been one of the major points of assessments in, in the yeah. six-minute walk test for ambulant patients. In non-ambulant patients, slightly more difficult. We are thinking of tasks like there is a manual bicycle that has been used in the Netherlands to see how quickly they will tire or how long they can perform an item. But when we discussed this task with the boys or with the families, they were not really impressed by these saying uh, we measure endurance in another way, that is how many hours we will be able to do things, at what time we are tired at night and so on, and not on a specific test, because they can be easily tired on a specific test, but they still be able to do many things during the day. While as clinicians or physiotherapists or, let's say, as academics, we were very interested in endurance, the boys were a bit less impressed by this test. But there is a new tool coming from a group in France at the INSERM where they can measure movements of the hand. That is very, very promising, and this tool will probably be used in conjunction with the scale that we are hoping to develop to, or to finalize in the very near future, and it will be very interesting to look at the correlation between these two tools. 
I was just thinking of something very simple like the box and blocks because yeah. usually you can see what's happening and if they have to do continuous we, movement. We did try the box and <laughs> the, the box and blocks, but they were very heavy for the very weak children. Yeah, yeah. For the very weak, they can only use fingers. They, they wouldn't be able to, to perform the test. So it was okay, okay for the for the first stages of the disorders, but uh, we mm -hmm. were trying to identify the items that could go across the, the stages of disorders. But uh, I agree with you that this is something that should be explored. Is time not a problem here? Time is a problem, but it's not the only problem, because I think the real challenge is not really time, but how to score possible compensations, because yeah. when you observe several of these children, you will be, or boys, you will be surprised on how many things they can perform, even if they don't have enough strength or if they have yeah. contractions that puts a lot of limitations. So, I think that the biggest challenge will not be to see how quick they are, but what is the best performance they can get without too many compensation or to allow scoring for compensation. You don't like compensation or is it okay? No, we do like, but of course if you are performing a straightforward function, it wouldn't be fair to score in the same way someone who can, can perform very easily without any compensation or who can perform it using different sort of compensation. I, I think it's still important that they will still perform the function, but it should be scored differently if you can do it with or without compensation. I think this perspective you have taken by really asking the boys themselves what is the crucial problem for them is exciting. I think we should do that much more. In Absolutely. It was very educational for us because clinicians or physiotherapists or occupational therapists with an interest in this disorder, sometimes we think we know what, uh, how these boys will perform at home and so on. It was very, very interesting and educational to hear from them. I don't use these because, and, and, and to hear why they were not using the iPad or the iPhone or another machine. It was very interesting that we get for granted they could or could not do things and in real life they are able to do much more than we think and they have a different way of rating what is important for them compared to what we thought it was relevant for them. So I think it's a very useful approach and it's something that we have done consistently. We have selected items, we have discussed with them, we have tried them and then we have done a further selection, rediscussed and retried. This has gone on for three times. And I think it's been a very learning experience, not only for this specific scale, but as a methodology of selecting items. I really agree with you about that. How do you think you can sort of sort out these things now and base one scale who is standardized and then also have the ability to ask for their own ideas about how they're performing things? I mean, it's really the different side of the coin. Yes, we are running in parallel two different scales, as I said. One will be the observer yeah. rated and the other will be. So we have sort of developed a conceptual framework where we have put together what we think is relevant for the children and the different levels of activity from shoulder abduction to elbow to finger and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And one of the important things is that we are going through different stages and we are trying the scales and trying to see 
whether they really cover the full spectrum of activities. So we have already done a preliminary rush analysis to see how the mm -hmm. items fit together into the scale, and first results were very encouraging. And now mm -hmm. we have a second or third or fourth version of the performa after the rush analysis that we are trying to collect more data. And so it, I think this combination of performing new psychometric techniques like rush yeah. together with to have directly from the boys and their families what is important yeah. is going to be very, very exciting and very interesting. I think we have come into a new area of assessment when we started to use rush analysis because then we suddenly can use things as we think are important as we earlier haven't been able to put into scale yeah, and rating systems. So I think this is a very relevant statistical method for developing assessment these days. Absolutely, because the main limitation of a functional scale is that it's just the list of a number of items and it's very yeah. difficult to understand whether going from item 1 to 2 is, means the same from going from number 6 to 7. So the no. rationalysis <laughs> will allow to have a linear distribution of the items mm -hmm. and to identify possible gaps or redundancies and so on. So I think that combining the clinical meaningfulness with the new psychometric and statistical techniques will help a lot. I have to say that in the last five, six years, we have learned a lot on how to develop scale. We are still in a learning phase, and but five years ago, we would never thought of rationalysis or, you know, involving the families and so on. It, it's a very exciting uh, learning Developing experience. Developing tests is a never-ending story I have Absolutely. learned by hard experience. <laughs> But also probably takes some time before this assessment is available for people. If you wish to sort of uh, sum up your article a bit more, if we have to start a project today, what do you recommend us from what you have learned from this critical review to use? I'm afraid that none of these existing scales is really suitable at the time. I mean, the Brook Upper Extremity Scale is a very simplified way of scoring. This is still very relevant, but there are only six degrees of severity and will not cover mm -hmm. subtleties, let's say. And there are other scales that have been used for other disorders, like mm -hmm. an upper limb module for spinal muscular atrophy, that has a lot of interesting items, but again, it was not specifically designed for Duchenne. But I would like to think that this scale we are talking about is not very far from being submitted and made available because there has been a, a very intensive work by this international group, and I think it's nearly ready, so it's really a matter of a few months, hopefully. Seems very promising. Well, our, our podcast time is now coming to an end. Thank you both very much indeed for a very informative talk. The whole issue of outcome tools in medicine has become incredibly important in the last mm. few years, particularly as funding authorities are demanding proper evidence that interventions work, and as well as new therapies come available, and we need to prove that they work too. So this is a vital subject, and there's been a very informative discussion. Just to remind anyone who'd like to read the article that it is by Mazzoni et al. And it's entitled, A Critical Review of Functional Assessment Tools for Upper Limbs in Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy. It is in the October issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. Thank you both very much indeed.